takes the time to stop and smell the roses We're too busy walking around living our lives But By making the world a more beautiful place, Artemis publishes artists and writers from the Appalachian region of the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia and beyond. This is the time when we need to write and make art for the sake of healing our souls and enriching our communities. Welcome to Artemis Speaks. This is Jerry Rogers. And today, through the magic of technology, I'm conducting my interview with Ron Smith, long distance with Zoom. As Poet Laureate of Virginia from 2014 to 2016, Ron Smith has authored several books of poetry. Running Again in Hollywood Cemetery appeared this year from Mad Hat Press. Ron's other books are Moon Road, It's a Ghostly Workshop, and The Humility of the Brutes. Smith has taught poetry and poetry writing in three universities, but he always returns to the institution that first won his heart for its inspiring atmosphere and rigorous standards, St. Christopher's School in Richmond, Virginia. Ron is the first-ever writer-in-residence at the school and also holds its George O. Squires Chair of Distinguished Teaching. His poems and essays have appeared in many periodicals, including The Nation, Kenyon Review, both nationally and internationally, from London to Italy. He has also reviewed more than 100 books, mostly poetry for the Richmond Times-Dispatch. Ron Smith has been a presenter at many international conferences and given readings of his work in the U.S., Canada, Ireland, England, France, and Italy. A highlight was attending a gathering of Hemingway scholars celebrating poems about that author and other modernists in the Eiffel Tower in Paris, France. Welcome, Ron. Several years ago, Artemis Journal featured you as our guest writer, and you hosted a fundraiser for us, which was a big success. Thank you. We've published several of your poems through the years, This year, we published two poems in Artemis Journal 2020. It's great to catch up with you, so here are some questions. You served as Poet Laureate of Virginia in 2014. What were some of your accomplishments during that term? Uh, Mainly, I did what I already was doing, only I did a lot more of it, and I felt obliged for two years, uh, the two-year term, to say yes to everything. Uh, I would drive an hour to give a 10-minute talk and then drive back. (laughs) So um, after my term was over, I didn't feel obliged to do that kind of thing necessarily. But uh, it it was really, it was wonderful um, because it allowed me to do what I think I should be doing, uh, supporting the arts, especially in Virginia and especially the art uh, of poetry. Um, Accomplishments, I don't know. I. I did. I judged a lot of contests. Um, by the way, when when I, I was told uh, that I was going to be the poet laureate, I called my friend uh, um, uh, uh, Claudia Emerson, and she had been poet laureate of Virginia. And uh, I said, "What do you think?" And there was a long pause, and she said, 
people will take advantage of you. <laughs> and uh, and I did not find that, I have to say. Um, of course, she was a Pulitzer winner, and I'm not, but um, I think maybe people did take advantage of her, but I thought it was wonderful. Um, I uh, One of my favorite things that I did was I called up Mount Vernon, and I said, I think we should do a poetry reading at Mount Vernon um, and uh, focus on uh, George Washington. And uh, so we did. And I invited three other poets laureate, Kelly Cherry, Sophie Starnes, and Carolyn Ferranda. And we read uh, um, uh, Doug uh, Bradbud. Um, the director said, okay, yeah, well, this will be great. We'll, we'll do tea and fellowship with the poets laureate. And uh, I just want you to read uh, Phyllis Wheatley's poem about George Washington. And uh, of course I did. And then I read some more Phyllis Wheatley poems, uh, a wonderful uh, poet. George Washington met her. She was still a slave uh, when, when they met and uh, shook her hand and thanked her for her wonderful poem. Uh, that was, that was uh, a really special event. But, uh, you know, I, I did all kinds of stuff. I was a keynote speaker at a number of places. People, a lot of people, uh, a lot more people than usual, asked me to endorse their books. <laughs> and uh, that was not really a burden. I did a lot of it over two years, but um, I love finding new work. And, uh, and you know, you can't say what you don't believe. You can't lie about it. But uh, um, I loved uh, endorsing people's work after learning, you know, what they've done in a, in a new book. Um, I was the keynote speaker at the University of Dallas um, and I'm pretty sure most of these things, a lot of these things wouldn't have happened if I hadn't been the poet laureate. Um, and they asked me to come and give a talk on poetry and philosophy, which I had never done before. I was a philosophy major first uh, as an undergraduate. And so that was a, um, an interesting thing to work out. Uh, one, I guess the strangest thing was I was asked to do the invocation uh, on the floor of the House of Delegates, Virginia House of Delegates, and the Virginia uh, Senate. And uh, when when I was asked, I said, you know, I'm, I'm not going to do a prayer. I'm going to read a poem. And they said, oh, that's fine, fine, fine. And I said, make sure the people who are inviting me know this. And they said, oh, yeah, yeah, no problem. Uh, I'm not sure they did, tell you the truth. Uh, in fact, I think people were a little puzzled. <laughs> um, but I read uh, poems in celebration of of the state of Virginia. And uh, uh, that's another thing that being Poet Laureate helped me to do. It helped me to finish some things I had started uh, about the state. Uh, I'm from Georgia, but I've been here uh, most of my life now. Excuse me. <laughs> that should not be happening. We're all used to this. This is. This uh, I should turn that off. Sorry about that. No uh, problem. Yep the the world is is more relaxed these days. Yes. It's, yes. Oh, here you go. <laughs> both tenser and more relaxed somehow. Right. Well, we so, can talk um, over it. Yeah. Um, yep. Um, the the Artemis launch at the Taubman uh, Museum was one of the best things I did in those Yes. Years. That was wonderful. We loved uh, having you down here in Southwest Virginia. I had never been to Roanoke. Um, uh, it's just crazy. Um, People don't know what's going on down here, and there's a lot going on. It's wonderful. One of my best friends uh, grew up in Roanoke, and, uh, and uh, so it's always been this 
difficult place in my mind. Uh, because yeah. of, uh, well, you so, need to come back. Yeah. You need I, to come I, back I, at some point. You have an unusual history of playing football as well as being a scholar. How did this happen, and did these interests coincide or help each other? Yeah, I've, I've never thought that there was a conflict there, that it was odd. Um, now I know most people do, and whenever I discovered that people thought that, I just thought they were missing out on a lot of a lot of great stuff. It was just it was what I I was interested in and did from, um, I guess middle school on. I always loved books. In fact, my mother told me when I was in my thirties or forties that I had said to her once one night when she wouldn't read to me uh, again. Uh, I said, I can't wait till I can read, then I won't need you. <laughs> she, <laughs> which is a terrible thing to say when you're no, a four, break four her heart. Old. But, but that tells you that I love books from the beginning. And in middle school, a, a seventh or eighth grade teacher said, what do you want to do when you grow up? And I said, I want to write books. I didn't know I was going to say that. Uh, but interesting. It just came out of my mouth. Um, I I. I always thought of uh, football as uh, as heroic problem solving. <laughs> and uh, after I finished my football career in college, went into to a master's degree in English, I had a, a curmudgeonly advisor who at one point thought he was you know, going to set me straight um, and said something like, well, now you can put that football stuff behind and, you know, get serious with your life or some, some implied that if he didn't say it directly. And I said, in all earnestness, I said, I, you know, I see football as Shakespearean and, and the work we're doing, you know, this year as Chekhovian. And, uh, and he looked at me, uh, he either didn't get it or pretended he didn't get it and certainly pretended he didn't like it. Um, but I think that kind of sums it up. Uh, <laughs> two sides of, uh, of, human activity. When I played football and coached football for 13 years, uh, it was a, a more brutal game, believe it or not, than it is now. And uh, the, the, there were things that were legal, even when I finished coaching, that never should have been legal. And we took it for granted, and it was, it was a horrifically violent sport and, and, and happily violent. We celebrated the worst kinds of violence. And I've been writing about that, you know, for years now. Um, in some ways, I guess, I, being the poetry editor of the of the magazine Athlon, the Journal of Sport Literature, is kind of perfect. I wasn't sure I was going to like doing that, but I love uh, reading good sports poems and, and helping poets with their poems. So I, I, it's just what humans do, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> well, you have such a broad range of interest and in, uh, in your experiences. Do you have a favorite topic you like to write about besides sports? You know, when I look at my first book, and, and by the way, Running Again in Hollywood Cemetery is my most recent book and my first book. Oh, yeah, it right. Was it was reprinted. Right. It was uh -huh. reprinted. I finally got to change a couple of line breaks uh -huh. and, and I got to admit, uh, I don't know, five or six words mm -hmm. and uh, kind of reshape things and add a new poem and, uh, and, and use the original cover, hmm. which the photographer got to me too late in 1988. Um, and uh, so now the, the new cover is 
is the first cover <laughs> from all those years ago. Um, but, you know, I look at that book and, and what I've been doing in recent years, and I realized, I guess the major difference in my work is that I like using my reading now in my work. I write a lot of historical poems. And uh, I, why didn't I do that uh, to begin with? Well, in some sense I did. But, you know, back when I first started publishing poems, if you made too many illusions, you'd have to have footnotes or endnotes to explain, you know, what you're talking about. But I don't remember the exact time it occurred to me, but I realized everybody's got the world's knowledge in his back pocket now. They can Google Edward Teller if they don't know who he is. So I don't have to worry about that anymore. Uh, I can I can enter into the minds of people I've just read about and try to make them feel real, uh, like real people. Um, the first great success I thought I had about this was getting inside the mind of Martha Washington mm. as she was reported by George Washington <laughs> and, uh, and how she viewed him with amusement uh, and, uh, and kind of uh, tenderness too. Um, and I, that's, that's been uh, what I've been doing a lot of, but I just finished a, a very personal memory poem. So the answer is I, everything. I write about everything. Uh, overheard conversations, especially misheard over co conversations. <laughs> you, you, think somebody, yeah, you, think, you think somebody said something fascinating, uh -huh. and it's just because your hearing is going. Um, and <laughs> they didn't say that, but your mind wanted them to say uh -huh. that. So, um, you know, I, I like short, sweet lyrics. I like ugly, long narrative poems. I, I want to do everything before I finish everything. Well, the first book I ever read, The Moon Road, is how I found you. And I loved uh, reading about when you went to Oxford. You were just a young man, right? And you were... Yeah. You, you had... Well, I think, how old was I? I was 30 or something. Uh -huh. yeah. uh, 27, maybe. Uh -huh. How uh, wonderful late. that must have been. You know, it was absolute magic, and I had never been out of the country. Um, and I went to that uh, that city that I just fell in love with. Um, when I came back after that summer, the long summer of at Oxford, and the weather started to get cold, I felt awful for a couple of hours, and I suddenly realized this is what people mean when they say they're homesick. I've never been homesick. I, I left Savannah, Georgia, came 500 miles north to Richmond. I never felt homesick for Savannah. I was having this great adventure up in, uh, up in the north <laughs> and uh, in college. But Oxford is the first city, first place I've ever felt homesick for. And uh, that's so strange because I was only there for, what, three or four months the first time. And uh, it, it made a powerful impression on me. I, I reviewed a book many years ago for the Kenyan Review, um, a book of, of travel poems by a, um, a famous editor and poet in the U.S., and I gave it a very negative review. I thought it was, I thought, well, why would you waste verse, why would you waste poetry, the ultimate form of literature, on your travel experience? And part of what I said in that was, you know, 
this is a silly thing to do with poems. Well, I've been doing a lot of it. <laughs> and one of my uh, um, rules, I guess, is break your own rules. Um, I had a, a magical moment with the great poet, uh, uh, Bill Matthews, William Matthews, when I was at Breadloaf. And Bill was the one who read my 10 poems and met with me for an hour or two to talk about them. And my book had been published, the first book. And I was doing, I, I didn't know what I was doing with these new poems. And so Bill said to me, what can I do to help you with these poems? And I said, I don't even know if there are poems. I don't even know if there are poems. And, and he said, and this was the revelation, he said, that's good. That's good, he said. To, uh, and, and as soon as he said it, I realized he was right, that art has got to redefine itself constantly. And you, you, you try to do something new and you work on it and you get it maybe as close to perfect as you can. And then you don't want to do it anymore. You got to do something different. You got to find a, a new angle, a new challenge. Um, so uh, what was the question? <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> favorite topic, but oh, I, favorite I think topic. you've really gotten into you know, your approach. And, and that's what keeps your work fresh is if you constantly break your rules and do what you you know your instinct is telling you um now you teach in richmond at saint christopher school what advice would you give to our young aspiring writers our uh, old aspiring writers <laughs> well i you know i taught creative writing um to graduate students and undergraduates for years uh before i ever tried to teach it at the high school level even though um, St. Christopher School, 11s and 12s, uh, have, that's been my bread and butter all these years. And that, that's those are the, the people I most love teaching, I have to tell you. St. Catherine from St. Christopher's, 11s and 12s. Um, they're, they're smart. They're, they're fresh. Um, they do think for themselves. And uh, at any rate, I, I couldn't figure... I didn't think I could handle the emotional, especially the psychosexual stuff you get into with, with art, with real art, with poetry, with uh, you know, 16, 17, eight-year-olds. And I finally realized, well, you just have to do it as human beings, you know, they're, they're, they're people. Um, now, there are moments where I, I treat them slightly differently from, say, a 30 or 60-year-old Sometimes I don't want them to know exactly what they've done in their work. You know, they're using their subconscious in a powerful, effective way, and it doesn't need to become conscious yet. Uh, whereas I would make a, an older adult conscious of it uh, uh, for, for, for all kinds of reasons. But I'm very free with my advice to, to uh, students of all ages. And I don't mind this this. A lot of my, my teaching techniques, I think, horrify some of the creative writing uh, friends of mine. But I don't mind saying to a, a, a poet, well, if this were my poem, I'd change that. I'd, I'd try to find a better uh, image for the second stanza. Um, and and I'm, I'm trying to teach the way I want to be taught. If somebody can help me with a poem, uh, I want them to help me. And... And, you know, I can say if that were my poem, because it's not my poem. And I expect people to say, sorry, I think you're wrong. You know, 
here's what I think. I'm just one person. I've got more experience than you have, but I've made mistakes. So, you know, feel free to ignore the advice I'm giving you. So um, I, I give a lot of advice. I think the main thing I would, I used to tell young writers, I'd go around to schools and, you know, talk about what it's like to be a poet. And when I was <laughs> younger and more ambitious, I guess, in, in professional ways, a word I hate. Um, um, when I was more ambitious in, in the wrong ways, I would start off by telling them how hard it was going to be to be a poet, how little money you were going to make, you know, and how little respect you were going to get. <laughs> and I realized after a while, that was not a good idea. Um, that you're going to learn that yourself. I don't need to tell you that right at the beginning of your, uh, your activity. But what I, I tell them is what I, the advice I give them is do it for the joy of it. Writing, any kind of writing should be exploration. You're not writing to tell me something you already know. That's absolutely wrong writing. You're writing to figure out something. You're writing to find out what you do, in fact, know. You don't quite know you know it. Uh, and that makes writing fun. That makes it an exploration, a journey. Uh, and, and you have to write things, I think, that you want to read. You've got to write things that make you happy, that are surprise you and shock you in interesting ways. And so um, my advice is do it for the joy of it. Don't do it for the fame or anything like that, assuming there is any. Um, break all the rules if they get in your way. And, uh, and, but don't write for every, every now and then a poet, this could be an older poet or a younger poet, will bring me a poem and say, uh, would you take a look at this poem? And uh, frequently I'll just read it on the spot. And if I say something like, I'm not sure your reader's gonna, like the second line, often the poet will say something like, oh, I'm not writing for a reader. And then I hand it back and say, <laughs> okay, take it, go away then. <laughs> you know, um, I think that's bad. Um, you want to write for a reader, one reader maybe, but you're pitching and somebody's catching and you want to write for a, a demanding ideal reader who's going to bring out your best qualities as a writer and a human being. That's wonderful advice. Thank you. Uh, we published two of your poems this year in our journal. Hilda was too tall for a washable frock and EP in the garden. Can you elaborate a little bit about what that was about and what prompted you to write those poems? Yeah, I was, um, uh, you know, I, I go every two years to the Ezra Pound international Ezra Pound conference and, uh, uh, my connection with Ezra Pound, I don't know what you know about Ezra Pound, but he's a very problematic human being. Um, um, in 1990, I was finishing up, uh, or I was actually just starting, I guess, another master's degree, uh, Master's of Humanities. And I saw somewhere an ad that said you could go to Brunenberg Castle in the Italian Alps and study in the castle that Ezra Pound uh, went to after he was released uh, from uh, the uh, St. Elizabeth's insane asylum um, where he was locked up for basically for treason. Um, and you could study with Ezra Pound's daughter and uh, you'd be, you know, 
studying the works of Ezra Pound. And people had been telling me for years, uh, even some people whose uh, opinions I trusted otherwise, <laughs> that the cantos were the great 20th century poem. And I've got the cantos right over there on the shelf, and I've been reading them for years thinking, what a mess, you know. Um, this is, it's, it's got beautiful moments, but it's a big junkyard. And so when one of my, my poet friends, Lynn Emanuel, said, oh, it's a great poem of the 20th century, I thought, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to explore this. So there was the opportunity. So I went to Italy and studied in the Italian Alps um, and met Mary Durakovich, wonderful human being, Pound's daughter, and Olga Rudge, who was still alive at the time, and uh, very sweet to me. <laughs> but anyway, so I spent the summer rereading re re the cantos and studying the cantos and getting to know Italy. Um, and at the end of the summer, I decided, no, I was right all along. And I felt guilty. <laughs> I felt guilty about it because I had come to really love Mary and, and I didn't want to hurt Mary's feelings. You know, she was doing her best to carry her father's flame into the 20th and 21st century. Um, so, um, you know, I, I've been reading about pound ever since. And, and Mary's been a, a she, she's a good soul. Um, and she, when I first published some things that I thought would, be too negative about pound because i mean you got to tell the truth as you see it if you're not going to tell the truth don't be a writer i mean it's a waste of time um and uh we're still good friends and i've been uh now that i can can speak about think about pound in the way that i think is true and, and necessary that he's he's much more interesting to me i don't see him as a as a minefield uh full of uh, mistakes i could make or or whatever and and so i was reading uh some hd material some biographies of hd in her own book into torment and i came across that passage where she talks about their teenage love affair and i just thought it was charming and i thought this is a side of pound you people hear about but they never really think much about and so i just wanted to i wanted to enter into it and and see if I could feel what they felt as just, you know, kids um, and what it was like to be these awkward young people having this, uh, this first experience. And uh, the more I, I wrote about it, the more I thought it could become a pretty good poem. And so I wrote really kind of two versions of the same poem. And that's, that's what you, uh, Lovely, we're so lovely to publish. Uh, and and when I do, when I was looking at which one to send you, I realized they're kind of, they really do go together. They're companion poems, and so um, that's the kind of historical poem I love working on. I I feel it's a you know I hope the reader feels that it's a time machine, but more importantly, <laughs> I feel it's a time machine. I get to go back and and see what it was like to be Ezra Pound and Hilda Doolittle in the early 20th century in Pennsylvania. Well, it's a great insight into what motivated you to read these poems, or to write these poems. Do you have them handy? Could you read? I, I do. Um, we would be delighted to hear you read them now that we know yeah. what was going on with you at the time. Well, thank you. Um, 
Seems to me this is the best order. I'll read the EP poem first. And uh, one of the things I've been doing in recent years, which I've noticed some of my fellow poets find nightmarish, um, is I, I want the poem to be interesting on the page. I want it to be uh, a, a work of art for the eye, an object of art for the eye. Even if you don't read English, you can look at this poem and, and you get the feeling, I think, both of these poems, especially the EP and the garden poem, uh, I want you to get the feeling that you're not looking at machine parts, you're looking at something vegetable, you're looking at a tree, maybe, um, something organic, and the lines scatter around in a, in a way as to suggest that. Anyway, here it is, EP in the garden. Up the big maple, into my brother's crow's nest, the house hidden by leafy branches. Beyond the hedge, occasional cart, carriage. Every half hour, a rattling tram jolting past. He must not miss the last car, the train to Winecoat. There's another and a half hour. Ah, dryad, he says. We sway with the wind, with the clouds. Finally, finally, we slide, slip through the branches, leap together to the ground, the solid ground. No, I say, no, drawing back, a girl of my time and place. I'll run ahead and stop the trolley. Quick, get your books, whatever you left in the hall. I'll get them next time, he says. Run, I say, run. He just catches it, nearly falling, the trolley swaying. Now I face them in the house, father winding the clock, mother saying, where were you? Didn't you hear me calling? Where is Ezra Pound? Gone. Books? Hat? You'll get them next time. And when I came across this sentence, by the way, Hilda was too tall for a washable frock. <laughs> I thought, oh, I got to do something with that. Um, that was from Barbara Guest's uh, biography of HD, I think. If not the exact wording, something very close. As the footnote says. Anyway, here it is. A Hilda was too tall for a washable frock. Her mother wished dresses could fit her the way they did other girls. Toweringly embarrassed at Wanamaker's Bonwit tellers, she was savage on the basketball court. Nothing fit her but Ezra, turret of classics, torrent of words, who would climb the lofty maple in her parents' garden. Another's beating heart, another's breath, clang of the trolley beyond the hedges. They stretched out in the crow's nest her brother had built. How he ached to kiss her, how she ached. He frightened her every time he caught the last possible trolley, wildly swaying, nearly falling, waving, shouting, I'll pick up my hat, the books, next time. Wonderful. We loved having them in, or having them printed in Artemis Journal. I love your magazine. I love the way it looks every time. Well, and I love the, the visual part of it, too. We put a lot into the art and... I enjoyed what you said about how you lay your lines down for poetry. You want to make them visual as well. Well, thank you, Ron. This has been delightful speaking with you, catching up with you. I hope you come back down to Southwest Virginia sometime soon. We'll hope for the best future and uh, see each other again. I'm sure we will. And, uh, you know, I hope you come to Richmond. Uh, if you haven't been to Richmond lately, remember... I usually take people down Monument Avenue when they come to Richmond, but uh, 
it's mainly a bunch of empty pedestals now. <laughs> empty pedestals. <laughs> Why don't you write a poem about that? Oh, I have. <laughs> I bet you have. Well, thank you. And this is Jerry Rogers for Artemis Speaks, and appreciate everybody tuning in. We'll see you back again soon. You've been listening to Artemis Speaks. Artemis is a charitable organization now 43 years old and has evolved to be all-inclusive, a journal with essays, poetry, and art. 10% of the journal's sales are donated to a women's shelter in southwest Virginia. If you're interested in learning more, artemisjournal.org. You can mail us directly at P.O. Box 505. Floyd, Virginia, 24091. The closing music and the opening music you're listening to is Jordan Harmon. And the song is Just Slow Down, a very appropriate comment for the times that we're in. If you want to read, you have to slow down. Artemis Speaks, the podcast, is recorded twice monthly at Final Track Studios so just in Virginia. All rights reserved. It is co-produced by Jerry because Rogers you can't back your time. And you know you can't lose touch of those things that you so much He loves so much Can anybody tell me When it became so cool We got everybody walking around Trying the same thing that everybody else they do and you know oh yes you know you gotta be yourself cause yourself is all you got and all you got is what you need look in the mirror see it clearer the answer's staring at you So just slow down in life Because you can't buy back your time And you know you can't lose touch Of those things That you love so much Slow down if you've got to just slow down if you've got to baby just slow down Yeah just slow down if you've got to baby just slow down if you've got to just slow down if you've got to baby just slow down Just slow down if you've got to baby
bed, just slow down if you've got to. Just slow down if you've got to, baby. Just slow down. Just slow down if you've got to, baby. Just slow down if you've got to. Just slow down if you've got to, baby. Just slow down.